listening to the Sage Hill Podcast. For this week's episode, we want to share with you an excerpt from Dr. Chip Dodd's recently released audiobook, The Perfect Loss. Here's Chip. Jesus the Christ has transformed my life from the time of my youth until now, and He will be doing so beyond the publishing of this book of dust. He does so because He wants me, whether I like the action or not. He has kept me a child, so I can remain like He made me, dependent. He has given me a desire to give myself away, so I can have more beyond myself, servant. He has given me a passion to see a vision fulfilled, leader. He has made me a dependent servant leader, an emissary of a great and glorious God. Jesus said that He came to give us life and that life to the full. Jesus calls us to see who we are made to be so we can do what we are made to do. He desires for us to live with passion and intimacy with integrity so that we can live fully, love deeply, and lead well. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gave us a declaration of liberty and fulfillment. In eight statements, Jesus gave us keys to the storehouse of life and it to the full. This book is about the storehouse, the quest for our lives and God's unending goodness. And it is about how to live it, beginning with the fact that we cannot do it, but He can. When I was in my high school years, I remember seeing the Beatitudes. I actually have a memory of my eyes on the page. I just had no idea what they meant. I thought they were something I did with the right attitude and action. At that time in my life, I frequently read the Bible, looking for something I could not find, something I knew I needed and something I tried hard to do. I tried to be good. I even wanted to be good so bad things would not happen. I really did not feel good, though. The Bible, I thought, would and did tell me how to do the things that would make me good so that I would be okay and not afraid. Do these things and be successful. If not really successful, at least somewhat acceptable. I thought the words were something someone could do with concerted effort and focus, and then things that were good would happen. I believe life was made up of the following mantras, do to have, perform and reward, action equals results, ultimately create your own destiny. If you think it, you can achieve it. I didn't know that we do not have such power as to make destiny, though we do have the power to refuse God's desires for us. Humans work like they have such power. Life does not work like humans demand. Life is actually what occurs while we make our plans. Life is bigger than us. God remains lovingly greater than the life we know and better at planning than our limitations could ever bring us to. He is destiny. I became insane, no longer whole with myself, others, or God, trying to perform enough to make me okay with myself, others, and God. I believed that I could do enough things that would make my life fulfilling and me not afraid. I attempted the impossible with God's help. We humans delude ourselves with this kind of insanity. I had forgotten that God does the impossible without our help. Every child knows that to be true. And when life does not happen like the child imagines, they cry perfect tears and God hears them. Not until after many years later would I find that the Beatitudes present the doorway into liberty and the pathway into life. When I finally remembered how I was created, I began to see what I had missed and could have restored and much more. I did not just look at the Beatitudes on a page. I was allowed to move into them. And now I have no desire to live anywhere else. The Beatitudes have been referred to as ascending steps, 
like order that we climb. Without doubt, I see them as steps, but not that we climb. They are more like movements of progression and expansion that God does for us as we surrender. They bring us close to God and to the full harvest of dirt living on this earth. They bring us into full life in this world, the tragedy and beauty. They also hand us spiritual eyes of eternal focus and transformative vision of heart. The Beatitudes also have been called circles that concentrically and continuously bring us back to our beginning admission of need. They are. But they are circles like a honeybee's flight, rather than circles made by a compass. The bee's flight without fail is purposeful, pointed, and passionate. The flight pattern looks like the flight of the blind, chaotic even, yet it zigzags its way pulled and pushed by scent and sense of the flower and the hive. The bee will do this wonderment that makes food from flowers to its death, serving because it cannot do otherwise, perfectly pre-designed. The circles of the Beatitudes are like chaos that has God's mysterious, unfailing order branded to them. They are steps and they are circles, yet we are led through them and shaped by them in a way that will not give us control. He has control. We have freedom and fulfillment. The Beatitudes are a blessing promise. The statement of a king who came to us as paupers to declare us emissaries, to let us see who we were made to be so we could do what we were made to do. They declare an invasion of truth into reality and point to a doorway into a new kingdom. Jesus is a king who has a kingdom, and the Beatitudes are the gateway and then the pathway into the fullness of both, the king and his kingdom. Finally, the Beatitudes are a mystery, impossible to do. The words are directions to a surrender that sets us free. He does it. We let him. He reconciles us to ourselves, each other, and him. Then we, in all walks of life, offer the medicine of recreation to the sick of heart. This book is not about my life. It is about life, which has me in it too. From the first page to the last page, it speaks of redemption, recreation, and reconciliation. The Beatitudes Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3-10 Remember, I am not big, but I am a big deal. I lost the latter and tried to change the former. Power became my drive rather than passion making me fully present. Power over presence. I was safe but lost. Hell is a door locked from the inside. Jesus said that he came to seek and save what was lost. I had lost my way. I had lost the truth. I had lost heart. I was losing my life, the life he came to give. Chapter 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I was eight years old and in the third grade, I woke up one Sunday morning before others in my family. At the time, I was also awake to wanting to be near to God in some way. 
I don't remember if I dressed first or went first to my parents' bedroom to get my mother to ask her if she would take me to church. She put on her house coat and drove me down Maymont Drive, out Clark Boulevard to Tennessee Boulevard, and within minutes I was walking up the large set of concrete steps. I barely remember being in the building at all. I do remember leaving the service, stepping into the bright sunlight outside one of the three large white double doors. Mr. Beatty greeted me with a white, kind smile and told me I had on a fine-looking tie. He bent at the waist, reaching down to shake my hand as I headed out with everyone else back down eight wide concrete steps. The church was a traditional building, red brick, white doors, large stained glass windows. The windows, though, were a solid color, not stained glass stories because the denomination considered holiness somehow to be about a lack of adornment. They did not understand beauty or loveliness or magnificence or creativity. I guess they figured we would be distracted away from God by creativity. Down the steps and across the street was the home of the president of Middle Tennessee State College. From that spot home to my house, the street was lined with campus buildings and grass on one side and classic bungalows and homes from the 1940s on the other. Then the late 50s and early 60s houses started being built as the town grew. Going the other way from the church half a block went to East Main Street, which ran to the square past some of the grandest houses in the world. In the summertime, the sound of cicadas and tree frogs, the aroma of tree leaves, and even the scent of houses decaying were all somehow comforting. It would awaken longings in me that people have when home, summer sounds and smells, like when life's history becomes a nostalgia that we can feel. The tie I had on was my favorite clip-on, a gold-yellow and red paisley worn with my white button-down, short sleeve shirt, followed by my church pants and church shoes. Church shoes were hard-soled and dark, shoes you can't run well in. As I walked on the sidewalk toward home, I remember the shade of mulberry trees covering the sidewalk. The sound of the mulberries that had dropped from the trees popping under my shoes sounded good. I remember shade and sun painting the yards and sidewalk, grackles making their scratchy calling, and a warm summer morning with just a few clouds in the blue sky. All of the colors were sharp. I liked God a whole lot, maybe even loved Him, felt close to Him, wanted to be with Him. I believed. Somehow I just knew. I went on down Tennessee Boulevard, crossed Clark as Tennessee curved, turned right on Maymont, and walked along the curb to my home. I felt good, just good. It was like that feeling you get when you know somebody likes who you are, so you smile a little, but you're embarrassed all at the same time. Another time, very close to Christmas Eve, I stepped out of the back seat of our car at home pretty late one night. Time on a clock meant nothing. Dark a long time meant something. Before I went in the house, I looked up at the stars. The sky was covered with them, like cold, twinkling lights. One of them must have been very, very bright a long time ago, shining the way for the wise men and shepherds. I knew it was so. My heart just knew. And it was also kind of lonely in an okay sort of way. Every year at my elementary school, we had a spaghetti supper, followed by games set up at booths in the gymnasium. We had a ball. It was a fundraiser, which I didn't really think about. I just wanted to buy tickets to do the contest in order to win the trinkets. What a magical celebration. People would bring things from home to donate as prizes, or we could win pencils, erasers, or keychains with the school logo. 
In my opinion, keychains were only meant to be decorations. I did not have keys. My parents had keys. The duck-floating game with the numbers on the bottom of the ducks caught my eye. On the top shelf were the best prizes. I saw the picture of Jesus, the one in Gethsemane, where he looked to God for help, but God wouldn't give it, because he wanted to help us through his son, so he couldn't. I wanted that picture. I knew Jesus was alive still, and I wanted to be near him. I liked him a lot. He cared. I could tell by his face. He also hurt. God liked him, too. I played, and I won the picture. When we all left the spaghetti supper, my paper sack of prizes in hand, I tripped off the sidewalk just outside the cafeteria and fell into the grass in the dark. My sack landed on the edge of the concrete. I heard glass crack, and I knew it was my picture that I had won from the top shelf. I looked when we got in the car, and the crack went three ways. I cried, and nobody knew why. The picture disappeared somewhere later. I guessed that they didn't fix glass during that time. The broken glass meant the picture was ruined. I had no idea where I would put it. I just wanted to be near whatever it all meant. God was like cool green fescue, and he could paint with colors like blue and yellow. He loved the sounds of meadowlarks in spring and fall, rolling thunder, rain, and laughter. He knew the sounds of birds' wings that fly over in flocks and the spicy taste of persimmons. He liked sparrows and pumpkins, our feelings and the sun, baseball and his son. He was crazy about his son. They talked all the time. God sent him to tell us all about these things that he liked, and we killed him for it. I did not understand that part yet. I do now. I'm still sad about it. I'm glad, too. We all know somewhere in our hearts that life as we know it is not like it was made to be, that there is more to life than the reality we see. Jesus came into this tragedy of survival and brokenness to reconcile our hearts and life to a great God who has greatness for us. He gives us reconciliation, redemption, recreation, restoration, and repair here on earth and final fulfillment and repair later on in heaven. He makes us fully alive to ourselves, to Him, and to others again. When we get older, we forget to believe. We get rid of the heart, subordinating ourselves to survival rather than living in surrender to God. I did anyway. And I know someone else who did. I pushed the truth of me, God, and others away and forgot as reality overwhelmed the truth. Reality overcomes the truth until the truth overwhelms us again, if we are blessed by desperation for it again. There is no way back to childhood, and no one created by God would wish truly to become a child of earth again. There's no way back, but there is a way through to believing fully. We become children of God who shows us the truth that overwhelms reality every time. As I say, I push truth away, And I know someone else who did, too. Actually, I've known hundreds and hundreds who have. There was a young girl in Israel a long time ago whose heart, dreams, hopes, and hurts were just like every other child. Sometimes in the quiet of the early morning, she saw the sunrise, casting shades and shadows beautifully across her surroundings. She heard the sparrows close to her window. She became excited and frightened in the noise of the marketplace. And during the cold nights of winter, she longed for warmth. She chased whirlwinds that picked up leaves and dust, then watched them spin about and disappear. She hummed a song in her heart of love, hope, and creation, believing life's dreams come true. She hungered for her father's comfort and for her mother's care, and she believed with hope. She cried out in the dark and reached for goodness, 
She was not ashamed to be in need. Jesus said of children, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew nineteen fourteen. Another time his own disciples asked Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew eighteen one. He called a little child and had the child stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 2-4 Jesus spoke of the children not because they were good, but because they were still living human truth. Children cannot hide their neediness, their tears, their fears, their joys, and they live in surrender of the possession and expression of their hearts. Jesus calls neediness and reaching out from our neediness faith. The girl mentioned above also heard and saw things that made her heart slip backwards and close in silent isolation. When her heart went numb to truth, she lost her way and became everything no child dreams to become. Even her beauty became a doorway to despair and contempt. She became contemptuous of her neediness and she lost the eyes of heart to see the sun's rise and to dream. Shadows and darkness cloaked her. Only clinging memories of hope remained within to cause her pain. She became an adult. The Gospel of Luke calls her a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Luke seven thirty-seven. Jesus will soon call her forgiven and liberated as she crosses the bridge of the first beatitude. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she went to him. What would make her be so foolish and so bold like a child? Perhaps one day while hanging back on the edge of a crowd or from a window above, she heard this man called Jesus say, For such as these. He held a child in his arms, declaring life and love for those who could not help but be in need and wish to believe. What if he spoke truth? Or was he himself one more man who left her condemned to pretend, and he one more man pretending himself? She had turned her face away from his voice to escape her heart's memories, but she could not escape her hope. When he spoke, she vaguely remembered the sunlit colors of a place she left behind. Even squeezing her eyes shut tightly didn't stop her sight. The flicker of memory, of hope, and of heart drew her to danger to herself and to him. Jesus had been invited to the Pharisee's house for a meal. His name was Simon, but more important was the label, a Pharisee named Simon. A Pharisee had power, position, privilege, and permission. When a Pharisee spoke, either you bowed in subordination or you could scoff if you were rich and could afford impertinence like the Sadducees. Of course, you could be purely powerful like the Romans and threaten the cross that meant death. The Pharisees were smart enough to play politics with the Romans, despise them and compromise with them while planning to survive long beyond their absence. Because they spoke for God, the Pharisees also assumed power over people's hearts and so could condemn someone long before they ever died. Freedom came from doing enough for God so that He would be temporarily pleased enough to bless you by leaving you alive. The idea of crying out, reaching for mercy, believing in need, tenderness, touch, and grief, like such as these, was the childishness of once being little but no more. The Pharisees' fear of their own hearts was potent with the power to influence even the stoutest child to doubt God's creation and stifle the hunger pangs to cry out for God, to do for them what they could not do. They spoke for God, 
but most of the leaders had forgotten their hope in the God who can change things from the inside and be present with us. They had forgotten the God who said, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 They had too much pride and responsibility to believe the words. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Isaiah 30.19 They no longer taught that the heart turning to hope and resting there is salvation, nor that in quietness and trust is God giving us strength. Isaiah 30.15 They would no longer have any of it. So the people paid. The sinful woman had tired of believing, succumbed to power and forgot her heart while they worked to ignore theirs. She had become so tired. Somewhere beneath her despair, a shred of color and breath like a light whirlwind moved her out of the shadows into the Pharisee's world where Jesus, her destiny, reclined. The Pharisee had invited this Jesus person, someone notable for the time being, to dine with him and others. This was a meal in which Jesus would be assessed for placement and privilege by the distinguished. In Simon's judgment, Jesus failed miserably and quickly because of how he treated this intrusive woman. She stepped into the midst of the meal, carrying an alabaster jar. Simon knew exactly who she was and previously had mercifully avoided his duty of condemnation because she had never shown herself outside the shadows. He knew she was a sinful woman. And as she stood behind Jesus at his feet, Simon decided Jesus was no prophet of no import, for he neither rejected her outright nor ignored her with disdain. She broke every rule. Even the poorest of the poor decently waited until the well-fed left the scene before they came in for the crumbs from the table. She became an affront and essentially asked to be stoned. She had judged herself by stepping into this exposure. It would be her fault. She had condemned herself, she knew, but she was so tired, either death or hope, shadows finally covered by darkness or the flicker of a dim memory was true. Either he truly knew something or death. The last step she could take left her standing behind him at his feet. Words stuck in her throat. She tried to say, wanted to say, for such as these, like a question, but the only sound were tears touching Jesus' feet. Tired, so tired, so lonely, no pride left, only dried, broken hopes. She cried loss, fury at men, hatred of herself, doubts about everything. Tears flowed out and fell away like the memories of old promises whispered to her on bird's wings when she was little. She fell to her knees, one last move before death, either life or death, but at least this much life before I die. Her tears fell. Her neediness, her hardness, her cynicism, her belief, wishes, memories of sunrise and birds and dreams, her knowing smile all faded onto his feet as she wiped his feet with her hair. In the beggar's pose, she began to pour out the perfume, the wages of her work, an offering to Jesus from the darkness of her life. She poured out her whole life upon him, naked creation before him, with Simon looking at them in judgment. She exhaled the breath of the grieved out, resting at his feet just there, the hope of a beggar and the hope of creation. Jesus, 
Give me one or the other because I cannot live any more in the deadness of my life, she may have thought. Quiet all around. She then heard Jesus speak, not to her yet, but to Simon, about Simon himself and his self-righteousness. Jesus told the simplest of stories. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them loved him more? Luke 7, 41 and 42. Simon replied smartly and probably with sniffing indifference and a clear push to end the whole gathering. He knew all he needed to know. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Luke seven forty three. Jesus recognized the heart of Simon's words, for he said to Simon, You have judged correctly, and yet Simon missed every single tear and every movement of neediness. Simon, ironically, had suddenly become the one with the greater debt. 500 denarii the woman would never have been able to repay. The amount presented a mountain that the woman could not climb. It was impossible. She knew that with everything in her. Simon supposed indifferently, but she fell at his feet. Simon looked down at them both. Then Jesus said, Do you see this woman? Simon looked at her. Jesus saw her through the eyes of his heart, and her heart had been poured out at his feet. Her heartache, her terror, her sin, her neediness, her loss, her refusal, her hardness, and her small memory of whispered hope of life from a time she had forgotten. Jesus then spoke to her after creating refuge around her with him and offering Simon the same opportunity to have what she was receiving. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How could this be? Could faith be born in neediness and love be available to the grotesque? She heard Jesus' words but did not move. He lifted her chin toward his face. She saw into his depths. The words fell over her like water quenching all of her. She could not capture them. She could only meet them in her heart. The next words frightened her. Go in peace. Where would she go? She had already worked herself to deadness looking for life. She found no peace. How could she go in peace if it meant returning to everywhere she had already been? I think, I believe, that she asked Jesus if she could stay with him. She had found peace in his presence, his voice, and his face. So she would go where peace is, with him. The doorway to life opens and she stepped into the quest of life called the kingdom of heaven. She was once a child and she remembered. I was once a child who, like her, would work to forget and ignore I too would remember, but not until I became more like her. We are all like her in one way or another. She is everyone who has Christ. She is our human story, and she found the doorway to life through her neediness. Jesus meets us there to take us to life, the life we are made for. We hope you've enjoyed this excerpt from Dr. Chip Dodd's recently released audiobook, The Perfect Loss. For more information about Sage Hill, As always, visit us online at sagehillresources.com. For the remainder of this audiobook, The Perfect Loss, visit audible.com.